Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 1. Last week, I wrapped up the history found in the book of Joshua, a narrative that ends with Joshua and the high priest Eliezer's deaths. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the book of Judges, a book that bridges the period between the conquest of Canaan and the uniting of the kingdom under Saul. And with that, let's get started. But before I do, a programming note. I'm currently 286 episodes deep into the podcast, with this being the 287th. Add to that thought that the site that hosts the cast, Blueberry, limits the number of episodes to 300. What this means is that sometime in November, I'll hit that limit. With most podcasts, especially those that are built around current events. A limit like that isn't an issue, as the oldest episodes are simply deleted. Not so with this one, as it's best to listen from the beginning, as the last leads to the next. So, an inflection point. My plan is to release a new volume, with the first 300 episodes being Volume 1, and the next Volume 2. When that happens... Rest assured, I'll let all of you loyal listeners in some 196 countries know. But you're not off the hook. You'll have to find the cast on your provider and subscribe again. Meaning, do a quick search and subscribe. Likely similar to how you found the podcast in the beginning. At first, I wished it would be a clean break, occurring when I was switching gears and starting a new chapter. But considering that Judges is another Old Testament book based in history, I doubt I can get through it in 13 episodes or less. And I'm not going to rush. As the time gets closer, know that I'll give more updates. For now, just keep in the back of your mind that a change is a-coming. And with that programming note done, let's get started on the book of Judges. Like I mentioned earlier, Judges covers the time period between the conquest of Canaan described in the book of Joshua up to the establishment of a united kingdom of Israel, found in the books of Samuel. During this period, the Israelites were ruled, rather loosely, by people known as Judges, hence the appropriate name. The narrative found in the book follows a consistent, and unfortunately a repeated, pattern. The general progression is really a microcosm of the entirety of the Old Testament. First, the Israelite people are unfaithful to God. Because of this, they fall to their enemies. Realizing the error of their ways, the people repent and ask God for mercy. After this repentance, he sends a judge to lead the people, essentially delivering them from whoever the oppressor du jour was. And then they prosper but only until the cycle begins again. Thinking back to the last episode, when I summarized the book of Joshua in just under 30 minutes, just before he died, Joshua warned the people about adopting Canaanite religious practices. That warning did not work for long, as Judges chapter 2 tells us that the Israelites worshipped the Baals, Canaanite deities, and mentioned in the plural not surprising for a loose polytheism. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Within the book, it's generally divided into three different sections. 
The first is the introduction, sometimes called the prologue. In reality, it's a double prologue covering the first two-plus chapters. More on that in a minute. Next is the substantive middle section, which makes up the majority of the book, chapters 3 through the middle of 16. It's all wrapped up with the double epilogue found in chapters 17 through 21. Chapter 1 is rich with history, so for the purposes of this intro into Judges, I'll paraphrase and summarize. And a heads up, much of this history overlaps with the history found in Joshua, except for one difference. I'll wait until the end to point that difference out. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked God, Who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? God answered that it should be the tribe of Judah. Judah then asked the tribe of Simeon for aid. Embedded in this, we're told that Judah was fighting the Canaanites for the territory allotted to them. Essentially, they were fighting for all the territory within Judah that had not yet been captured, and even some that had been captured in Joshua. Judah promises Simeon that if they help conquer Judean territory, the favor will be returned to capture their own allotment. Simeon takes Judah up on the offer, and they both drive the Canaanites and the Perizzites from the land, defeating 10,000 enemy soldiers at a place called Bezek, which was probably near Gezer. Here, they defeated a king named Adoni Bezek, and this king was likely very powerful, as he's said to have ruled over some 70 vassal kings. The king wasn't killed in the battle, but instead sent to Jerusalem probably as a slave. He was apparently a particularly cruel king. I'll get to why that's thought about him when I do the deep dive. After defeating him, the army of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it. According to the text, they put the king to the sword and burned it, likely meaning they killed all the residents. But there's a problem with this, and found towards the end of this chapter. Then, Judah and Simeon fought against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. Following this, Judah fought the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, then defeated Shezai, Ahimon, and Talmai, giving about two minutes worth of material to cover in a future episode. After these victories, Judah captured Debir with Caleb making a promise to whoever captured the city. I'll get to all of that in this chapter of the podcast, too. Then we're taken in a bit of a rabbit hole. The descendants of Hobab the Kenite, who we're told was Moses' father-in-law, went with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. Then these people settled with the Amalekites. This certainly gives me a decent amount of material to dive into. After this brief diversion, the text takes us back to the plight of Judah. Judah went with Simeon and defeated the Canaanites who lived in Zephith. Note, there are two places with this name, one in Galilee and another less identifiable. One in Galilee was in neither Judah nor Simeon's territory, so it was likely not this place, and more probably the one we know almost nothing about. The allied tribes of Judah and Simeon destroyed the city, 
which may be one of several reasons why its location was lost. After this, the name of the city was changed to Horma. Note that in Numbers 14, the city was the site of an Israelite defeat, then victory a few chapters later in Numbers 21. Next, Judah captured Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, along with the territory surrounding the three cities. Overall, Judah managed to control the hill country, but couldn't subdue an area referred to as the plain, meaning the valleys. We're told the people in the valleys were unconquerable because they had chariots made of iron. Recall from several episodes back that we learned later in the Old Testament that the Philistines seemed to have mastered iron before anyone else in the region and held on to the secret for as long as possible, recognizing the strategic advantage the metal gave them. These people in the valley may have been Philistines, though the text isn't explicit, at least not here. Back in Judges 1, Caleb captured Hebron, where he drove out the sons of Anak, meaning a community of giants, as Anak was thought to be the forefather of the giant Anakim. But the Benjaminites did not defeat the Jebusites in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived in Jerusalem among the Benjaminites to this day. And that's the problem I mentioned earlier. Judah was said to have burned Jerusalem, but Benjamin couldn't capture it. Of course, Judah could have burned it, and some time passed, with the Jebusites reoccupying. But that isn't explicitly stated either. And in this case, to this day, was probably when the book of Judges was written. More on that dating in a later episode. Next, the house of Joseph meaning the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, planned to fight the city of Bethel. We're given a bit of detail on how this unfolded, detail that's missing from the account found in Joshua. The house of Joseph sent spies to Bethel. Then we're told its former name was Luz. When the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. So, he showed them how to get into the city. The Josephites put the city to the sword, but they let the man and all his family live. This unnamed man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city, and named it Luz. That is its name to this day. I briefly touched on this story several episodes back. As for why Joseph had to take the city at a later time, once again... The text is silent. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen, Tanuk, Dor, Ibliam, or Megiddo, or any of the villages surrounding these cities. Instead, they lived among the Canaanites. Later, when the Israelites were said to be stronger, according to the text, they were able to enslave these Canaanites. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. These Canaanites lived among the Ephraimites. The text does not say these Canaanites were enslaved. Next, we're told that the tribe of Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or Nahalal, and that the Canaanites who lived there were enslaved. Though in this case, it doesn't say how long afterwards the enslavement occurred. 
Likewise, Asher did not conquer Echo, Sidon, Alab, Akzib, Haba, Aphek, or Rehob. And the tribe lived among the Canaanites, but apparently did not enslave them. Naphtali did not drive out the Canaanites in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but lived with them and at some future point enslaved them. Then there was Dan. The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country and did not allow them to come down to the plain, meaning that the Amorites continued to live in Harhirs, Ajahan, and Shalbim, though the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim would eventually enslave the Amorites, at least those living in the region originally allotted to Dan. And that's the history found in Judges 1. What stands out to me is that it roughly aligns with that found in Joshua, with extra detail given about a few of the victories and defeats. What changes in these battles is that instead of fighting as a unified Israelite army, it was, in most cases, every tribe for themselves. Then again, the going theory as to why many of the cities had to be recaptured was that the Israelites won the first time around, then left, and the cities were reoccupied, in many cases by different peoples. So, the old strategy needed to change. Also, there's a great deal of detail left out. So it goes when so much history is condensed into a few passages, all in the first chapter. Chapter 2 is a switching of gears. It begins with the bad news. God spoke to the Israelites, saying, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I had promised to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. For your part, do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my command. Then God told them, I will not drive them out before you but they shall become adversaries to you, and their gods shall be a snare to you. When the people heard this, they wept. Then the gears shift again. For the second time, we're told that Joshua died. What's unclear is if the message from God was before or after Joshua passed. The end of the book of Joshua seems to indicate that it was after, but the order of events in this book makes the opposite seem true. Yet another place where the text is less than clear. After the recounting of his death, we're back to the Israelites' transgressions, with a little more description. This time, they took to worshipping the Canaanite deity Baal, or in particular, the Baals, and the deities, the Ashtartes. They are also said to have abandoned God, which at this point seems a bit redundant. All of this stoking God's wrath, and things came about just as Moses and Joshua had warned the people they would. They were overtaken by an unnamed people said to have plundered them, along with them being overtaken by their enemies that surrounded them. But that wasn't all. God was so fed up with their disobedience that whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune as God had warned them and sworn to them. And they were in great distress. But he wasn't done with them. After this, the text tells us that God raised up judges 
who delivered the Israelites out from under those oppressing them. But it was never enough, as the people did not listen to their judges, and instead lusted after and bowed to other gods. They soon turned from the way their ancestors had walked, ancestors who obeyed the commandments, failing to follow the example of those that had come before them. Then, we're given a little more detail into the cycle of oppression, mercy, leaders, then relapse. Whenever God brought up judges for the Israelites, God was with the judge, and the Lord delivered the people from the hand of their oppressors all the days of the judge. God was moved to pity by their groaning over those who persecuted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they would revert and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them, and bowing down to them. They would not cease any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of God was rekindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded their ancestors, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel, whether or not they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their ancestors did, God had left those nations, not driving them out at once, and had not handed them over to Joshua. And that's the high note that Judges 2 leaves us with the people continually failing to live up to their end of the covenant. Chapter 3 is a recounting of several of the non-Israelite nations remaining in Canaan. Names that should be rather familiar by now. Specifically, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, and from Bel Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath meaning that the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A snare to them. And they made the snare worse by taking their daughters as wives for themselves, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they worshipped their gods. All of this setting the stage for what was to follow in the book of Judges. In the next paragraph, and still in chapter 3, were given the name of the first judge, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He came on the scene after the Israelites abandoned God and were conquered by Aram Naharam, to whom they were subservient for eight years. As a reminder, Caleb was a member of Judah and one of the spies sent by Moses to explore Canaan who brought back the report that scared the Israelites enough for 40 years of wandering. He and Joshua were the only spies that urged an immediate taking of the promised land. Back in Judges, the events that occurred while Othniel was judge only takes up a paragraph, and this is the last place he's mentioned in the Old Testament text. There is a different Othniel written about in 1 Chronicles. Despite this brief appearance, I'll cover what's known about him in a later episode. The cycle then repeated itself, and we're told that the Israelites turned away from God. Then King Eglon of Moab allied with the Ammonites and the Amalekites and defeated the Israelites. Moab captured what was called the City of Palms. This was probably Jericho, as it's commonly called that name. 
But the identification as Jericho presents a problem. As in Joshua 6, the city was captured, then burned. And if that wasn't enough, Joshua cursed the city, saying, Cursed before the Lord be anyone who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. If the king of Moab captured Jericho, it would have only been after it was rebuilt. So, in a way, the curse came true. The Israelites would be ruled by King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Then they cried out, and Ehud, the son of Jerah, a Benjaminite, came forward as a judge. In one of the more curious bits of biblical text, Ehud is referred to as a left-handed man. In a minute, that bit of trivia will be important. And we're given a great deal of detail about how Ehud overcame King Eglon. Ehud made a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, so about 18 inches, just under half a meter. He fastened the sword on his right thigh, under his clothes. Then he went up to King Eglon, presenting him with a tribute. Then we're told that the king was a very fat man, and that day a sure sign of wealth. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who carried the tribute on their way. Which also tells us something else, that it wasn't a simple trinket, but something large enough to require multiple people to carry it. Then Ehud said to the king, I have a secret message for you. So the king dismissed all of his attendants, leaving only himself and Ehud in the room, described as a cool roof chamber, very important in a desert climate. When it was just the king and the judge in the room, Ehud told the king that he had a message from God for the king. So the king stood up. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, which now makes his left-handedness appropriate. He took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly, so deep that the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed up over the blade. Which is a disturbing image, which is why we were told the king was a fat man. Ehud did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the dirt came out. If you're wondering what is meant by the dirt coming out, you're not alone. A footnote in the New Revised Standard mentions that the meaning of the Hebrew phrase is uncertain. The same translation can be found in the King James, just without the footnote. The NIV leaves the dirt phrase out, and instead says the king's bowels discharged. Honestly, before I even opened up the NIV, that was my thought on the meaning. Eviscerated. Then Ehud went into the vestibule, closed the door of the roof chamber on him, and locked them. Meaning, as he was leaving, he locked the king in the room. After Ehud had left, the king's servants came back. When they found the doors of the roof chamber locked, they thought, he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. An alternate translation has the king covering his feet, which to me is a euphemism, meaning he was covering his feet with his robe because he took it off to relieve himself. Combine that with the evisceration, and you might begin to think the writer of Judges had a dark sense of humor. By the way, I need to get to who is believed to have written the book. The text is silent on the matter. 
Jewish tradition, in this case the Talmud, claims it was Samuel. More on that at some point in the future. Back with Ehud, the servants waited so long that they became embarrassed. There's likely a bit of cultural context missing here. Eventually, they retrieved a key to the roof chamber and opened the doors, of course finding the king quite dead. Because of their delay, Ehud had an easy escape. He passed beyond the sculpted stones at Gilgal, all the way to Sirah, which was another name for Bethel. When he got there, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the Israelites went down from the hill country, with Ehud in the lead. He told the people to follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, allowing no one to cross over. They were emboldened and killed about 10,000 Moabites. And not just any Moabites, but men described as being strong and able-bodied, leaving no one alive. This part of the chapter wraps up telling us that the land had rest for 80 years, which would be a good stopping point for the episode. But honestly, we know very little about the next judge. In fact, the biblical text is but a single sentence. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. For what it's worth, an ox goad is a wooden tool, approximately 8 feet, nearly 3 meters long, fitted with an iron spike or point at one end. It was used to spur oxen as they pulled a plow or cart. It often had an iron scraper at the non-pointed end to clear clods of earth from the plow when it became weighed down. This Shamgar delivered Israel, though we don't know how long it remained free after him. So, that's three judges, some with a great deal of detail, others with very little. And that's Judges chapter 3, at least deep enough for the introductory episode, and a good stopping point for this week. Join me next week, when I'll summarize the next judge, Deborah. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.